What is up, guys, and welcome back to the most bizarre show on the internet. I am the one that they call Shane. And I'm Oren. And Shane, I hear you've got uh, some pretty cool news to share with the listeners today. So, to all the listeners that have been keeping track of everything going on as far as social media goes, you guys have probably seen the new shirt designs that I've been working on. Uh, trying not to just make stuff specifically for the show, but also just stuff for like the community as a whole. And also trying to include all of our different types of listeners, because we know some of you guys out there are really into the UFO stuff, some are just into the paranormal, some are just into the cryptid, so I try to make individual specific shirts for all you guys and try to make them as part of a series so if they're not out already they might already they might should be coming out within the next couple days but uh, a couple of the designs that I made that you guys can definitely check out I think you guys will like is uh, I made one with a Sasquatch on it that says follow the tracks uh, I made one with a ghostly figure on it that says investigate the paranormal and then I made another really cool one where it's like a guy that's uh, out in the middle of the woods watching a UFO take off and it says watch the skies and then I also made one where it's like a reality with like a person kind of thinking and it says question your reality so I feel like that kind of accompanies all of our different types of listeners and uh, like I said I want to keep building up not just podcast specific stuff because I know not everybody likes wearing specifically podcast stuff so if you guys enjoy these shirts you guys think they're really cool let me know and if you guys enjoy them you guys like these type of designs then I'll continue working on more that aren't just podcast designs but again something that kind of accompanies uh, the community as a <laughs> and as always you guys know the drill hit us up on all our social medias the instagram the email discord youtube tiktok all that good stuff and remember to submit your questions for our patreon exclusive mini show bizarre inquiries and anybody that caught it last week we actually dropped one onto youtube where we we're talking about how likely we believed it was that you know, we could be living in a simulation. So if you guys haven't already went and checked that out, at least on the normal feed or on the YouTube, highly recommend going and checking that out. Let it, you know, kind of see what we're all about. And then you guys can drop some questions once you get kind of a feel of what we're doing as far as that show goes. But uh, beyond that, if anybody has any encounters that they would like to report, you guys can report those to OMM Encounter Reports at Outlook.com. And uh, I could possibly even come out and investigate it. Uh, you know, we might be able to read on the show, give you, give you a big shout out, or depending on how how big of an encounter you've had or how big of a thing that you've been experiencing, depending, I guess, if it's paranormal, cryptid, whatever, then you could possibly even be a guest on the show. But the only way that any of that stuff will be able to happen, of course, is if you guys share your encounters. 
And uh, beyond that, if you guys want to support the show, there's a couple different ways to do so. Number one is to go and join the Patreon. Over there, you'll get things such as early access to the show, lives of the show, live replays of the show, uh, exclusive hangouts, um, and a bunch of other cool stuff. There's multiple tiers. You guys can go and check it out. Let us... Uh, figure out which one exactly you feel will fit you. Uh, there's a $3 tier, $5 tier, both of those ones. Uh, they do have a seven-day free trial. So if you want to see what they're all about uh, without officially signing up yet, you guys are more than welcome to do that over there. And uh, if you guys want to... Another way to support the show, you guys can always go and check out the OMM merch store, which I referenced in the beginning, of course. Uh, you'll find stuff for this show, for Inquiries of Our Reality, and all the new stuff that I'm working on that will be dropping very soon. So make sure you guys keep an eye out for anything new that's happening with the OMM merch store. And a big thank you to our wonderful sponsors. I know Squatch. Uh, Rick and Hans are always killing it with their Sasquatch merchandise. And our buddy Joe at Crypto Theology, killing it as always with his cryptid and alien and high strangeness designs. And if you guys are bearded people just like me, not so much Orin, he's got the mustache going, so you could probably use a little bit of the product, but if you guys want to check out some awesome, fantastic body-slash-facial hair products, you guys can go and check out Snarly Gal. He's got this uh, fantastic scent that's a smoky cedar smell with like a hint of mint, and he offers uh, beard shampoos, uh, body wash, uh, beard balm, beard oil, a lot of awesome stuff. So definitely worth going and checking out. And beyond all of that, he does put on a lot of fantastic events, one of which is the one that Orn and I are going to be at this year in West Virginia. So if you guys are looking for something to do, Dave's always throwing awesome events. So I highly recommend going and following him on Instagram and seeing everything that he's all about. And to uh, all my paranormal investigators out there, don't forget to go and check out the Chattergeist. It is the all-in-one paranormal investigating device. A lot of new awesome updates coming for that, such as uh, the apps getting dropped if it hasn't already dropped already. Um, but if you guys have any technical questions about that whatsoever, you guys can hit up Barry over there in Dimension Devices. He is the guy that programmed and developed it, so he'll be able to answer any of your guys' technical questions. And if you guys decide to pick one up for yourself, make sure you guys use our affiliate link. Greatly appreciate it. And of course, that will go back into helping out the show. And all of this shit is in the link tree in the show description. And with that, now that we got all of the front of the house stuff out of the way, and uh, to all the listeners, I'm sure that you guys will notice in the next upcoming weeks that we're going to kind of reformat that a little bit, uh, make it so that it's kind of streamlined a little bit. I'm going to try to touch up touch up a little bit of the format of this show and inquiries. So you guys are going to be noticing a lot of new changes coming in the next couple of weeks. But beyond all of that, today, we are hopping back into the series that we've been working on that my awesome co-host over here, Oren, has been working on. So uh, without further ado, I'll pass the microphone over to you, Again this week, Oren. All right. So uh, first off, I want to apologize to you guys. I've been a little under the weather this week. Been uh, coughing and sneezing for a few days now, so my voice isn't quite up to crack. So uh, I apologize for that. But anyway, so we are going to finish up the Mothman Prophecies uh, deep dive today. And we will jump right into Chapter 13, which is called Phantom Photographers. So um, Kiel begins this chapter by telling a story that happened in the spring of 1967. He says that he and a, quote, lady friend, a lady la -la, friend, ooh la la, <laughs> were walking down the street in New York City when a tall, thin man suddenly appeared out of nowhere and took a picture of them before just running away down the sidewalk. That's a really and, awkward situation. Like, can you just exactly. imagine that? Was he was he walking with a lady friend of the night, considering it was in New York City? <laughs> uh, I, I do not have confirmation on that. But <laughs> lady friend, I mean, you can go any direction with that you want to, I suppose. <laughs> Take it how you choose, but it could go either way. <laughs> yes. So, uh, actually, said lady friend 
commented to Keel like how weird that situation was and said that the guy who took the picture was, quote, an evil-looking man, which I think that's kind of interesting because if you guys remember in last week's episode when we were talking about uh, Indrid Cold had met Woody Derenberger's wife and the wife commented that she thought he was involved in something evil. So, you know, just kind of another connection with people perceiving these like MIB type entities to be nefarious in some way. I'm glad you brought that up because as soon as you said an evil looking man, the first thing that came to my mind, ironically, was a giant grin. <laughs> Even beyond like the, the cold stuff. I mean, I don't know, man, where that's like when I think of an evil looking man and an uncomfortably evil person, like, I don't know why, but I always think of like a smile with it as weird as that sounds. Well, we're going to uh, hit the evil grin stuff a couple times in this episode. So uh, just sit tight. We're going to hit it again. So It's that uncanny valley feeling, man. I think that's what it is. It's just like it's such an unnatural smile that it makes you uncomfortable, even though it's a smile and shouldn't theoretically make you uncomfortable. Yeah, and it makes you look like an evil-looking man. <laughs> Don't smile too much at those ladies, my friends. Otherwise, uh, you might be perceived as an evil-looking man. <laughs> Unless you have consent, then I guess it's allowed. But. There's never consent. <laughs> anyway, so anything can be taken the wrong pleasant. way. <laughs> uh, Mary Hire was walking down Main Street one day, and she saw the same like strange little man that came into her office and took the ballpoint pen that we talked about in the previous episode. You know what he was and probably thinking is this is some futuristic technology. I can write upside down with this thing. <laughs> yeah, he's like, I need this for the UFO. It's zero gravity. We can't write with other pens. <laughs> So uh, Mary said that he was wearing the same like thick soled shoes that he was when uh, he came into her office. And when he realized that Mary had seen him, he like abruptly ran away and jumped into the back of a large black car, which is kind of interesting because, you know, we talk about, you know, these MIB characters riding around in big black cars all the time. Do you think there's something specific to them being black cars like, do you think there's like something like symbolic with that? Or do you think it's strictly the mystery of it? Or like, there has to be like a reasoning why it's always black cars. It's always black suits. Like, I feel like, um, like there has to be some type of like symbolic meaning behind them always being seen in all black everything, you know? Well, I've heard a lot of theories about that. Um, kind of one of the prevailing ones are if you want to entertain the thoughts that these are like time travelers or interdimensional beings or something like that, something from somewhere else, basically that they're going to assume the most generic facade, if you will, possible. And if they're hopping back and forth between different time periods, just a plain black suit is the most generic thing. Like if they're going through different decades, you know, for the past 100 years, a plain black suit, they're not going to look that out of place at any point in time. And I think as far as the black cars, uh, you know, they always talk about how these are older model cars, like 50s, 60s models, ca uh, cars, excuse me. Back in those days, cars didn't come in as many colors. You know, like <laughs> Do you remember the, the, just, the Henry Ford line that you can get your yeah, car in any color, any color you, you want, want as long as it's black? <laughs> yeah, and uh, I've got a, a black Ford sitting out in the the parking lot here so hey uh, i mean I, I took henry's advice so just to make another reference to the whole color concept too um i was recently reading a thing that was talking about like basically depending on what color you wear kind of gives off like a subliminal message to other people on like how to feel interpreting you 
So, like, just offhand, like, blue is supposed to be, like, a welcoming color, so people feel calm when they see people with blue. Uh, people wear, like, pink, because usually that's a confident color, so a lot of people that are doing, like, public speaking wear, like, salmon pink, for example, because it kind of gives off that impression mentally to people. Uh, when you get to black, uh, you usually give off the impression of being intimidating and mysterious. So, if they're getting into the whole idea about being able to ma manipulate the human psyche into feeling specific ways, which obviously these beings seem like they have a, a vast understanding as far as psychology goes, I mean, the black suits could have intentionally been worn for that aspect of giving off the feeling of being mysterious and intimidating, which is exactly what they were realistically trying to do, was they don't want to make you feel like you have any answers. They want to leave you feeling like you just got like mind fucked realistically by interacting with them. So I feel like there's also that concept to it. It's just an understanding of psychology and using colors specifically to make people feel a certain way when they interact with these certain people. Yeah. I've never thought about that as far as the colors, uh, making you feel a certain way, but that's a good point. Um, that's something I'll definitely have to look into as we kind of dig deeper into this whole men in black phenomenon, because we do come across these entities wearing like blue jumpsuits. And I think we talked about the, um, the strange little man wearing like a, a blue short sleeve shirt and blue trousers last week. So uh, blue does pop up, especially in Mothman. I wonder if that's times. when they're trying to be calming and they're trying to like, rather than intimidate, they're actually trying to receive information. So they try to wear a color that will purposely kind of leave you a little bit more, a little bit more calm, you know, like subconsciously. See, I think you might be onto something there because, um, like in Mary's first meeting with this guy, he was wearing the blue colors, and then a lot of the guys that they saw like posing as um, telephone company employees were wearing like blue jumpsuits. So maybe there is something to that. Trying to keep them calm—that's what it is, because they're actually trying to reach, receive information rather than again scare information out of them. Two, yeah. two different ways to go about it. Either one, you scare them into giving you the information, or two, you seem relatable so that they feel comfortable in wanting to give you the information. Yeah, they're being good cop and bad cop at the same time. <laughs> Depending on the color. Yep. <laughs> Can you just so, imagine that? Yeah. He's like, goes in, he starts yelling at him, he's wearing all black, and he's like, hold on a minute, I need to I need to cool off. And he comes back in wearing blue, blue, and he's like, on. so what have you been doing today? Do you got any jello that I could possibly eat? How about that pen? Can I have that ballpoint pen? That thing is really nice, man. <laughs> All right, so jumping back in, uh, a few nights later, uh, Mary was returning home from a late meeting after work, and as she was opening her front door, a black car like screeched to a stop in front of her house, and a man jumped out of the car, and he took a photograph of her, and she said that the camera's flash seemed to be like unusually bright, like way brighter than a normal camera's flash, so this kind of brings up ideas of like, you know, the whole like zapper thing in the Men in Black movies. I feel like they're purposely um, trying to make these people paranoid because, again, going into that whole psyche concept, if you just have random pictures taking pi random creatures, people taking picture of you, pictures of you and then running away, it's going to make you extremely paranoid. So I feel like well, that, that may have just been the only detail they were trying to do was intentionally make these people paranoid so they're actually watching their back and not going around and saying everything to everybody, you know? Keep the information well, yeah, close I mean, to your chest. That's kind of what I was going to say. It seems like a lot of their you know, goals with all this is to just instill paranoia and make sure people don't talk by any means necessary. Cause I mean, that's another thing that you'll see a lot too with uh, some of like the really heavy, like UFO researchers that'll claim to see like black vans and stuff like that out front of their house. If they're trying to be completely incognito, 
then why are they using flashes? You know what I mean? Like even yeah. nowadays when you have advanced, more advanced cameras than you would have had back in the day when this was happening, you still have that flash concept happening. So again, I think it's intentionally psychologically intended to cause paranoia coming from whether it's a government agent or an MIB. Like it's, it's intentional because if they were really trying to be secretive and take a picture, there's no way in hell they'd be using a flash, you know? Well, we're going to get uh, here in a few minutes into some more ideas about this whole flash thing. So let's uh, put that on the back burner for just a second, but we're going to hit it here in just a minute. I'll hold my tangents for a minute. <laughs> I'm already going off so, the rails, right? Actually, not off the rails, but off on other side tangents right in the beginning. I got to let you get into uh, it a bit more. <laughs> so uh, after taking this picture of Mary, uh, the man jumped back into his car and the car sped away. And Keel said uh, when he was talking about like these photographers that, quote, our men in black were now engaged in a new game, or perhaps the game had been going on for years, but no one had ever noticed it before. As if I didn't have enough trouble already, now I was chasing phantom photographers all over the landscape. All right, so uh, kind of piggybacking off of that, Keel claims that many UFO contactee reports begin with, quote, the appearance of an entity holding some kind of, quote, flashlight, which is shown directly at the witness, which again, this is kind of the men in black movie zapper idea i was gonna say is this directly where it came from because it seems like the men in black idea probably came from this book in the first place yeah and then the flashlights could have been where they kind of did their hollywood thing and you know brought it to a whole other thing saying this is the flasher where people are forgetting stuff you know yeah but i feel like it's too close to not be at least based off of this idea yeah definitely because keel says that in a lot of these uh situations the eyewitness first notices a light and then they see like an entity approaching them and they have like another smaller light that they flash in their face. And then at this point they become paralyzed or are rendered unconscious. But kind of interesting, according to Keel, uh, Woody Derenberger was one of the few contactees who did not claim to have, you know, one of these experiences with one of these flashlight type things being flashed in his face. So I don't know what that really says about his encounter whether it makes it more believable or less believable but uh keel thought it was worth mentioning so you know what i was going to make a reference to too is the fact that in men in black obviously they talk about how this thing like erases memories but when they're talking about a men in black they kind of give them like a full scenario like oh you were just watching lightning happening or whatever mm -hmm. and then they kind of just wake back up and they're just you know back to whatever so even if this theoretically did have some truth to it you know they like kind of hide some truths within media if they're actually trying to try the truth of what those flashes were actually doing who knows if it actually worked or not because the person that would have experienced it would have been like, what the hell? What was that flash? And they wouldn't have even had like a memory of like what could, could have theoretically been removed, you know? So it's like this, that could have been there within this, but they just wouldn't have been aware that that was happening because they wouldn't have been aware of the information in the first place after it got removed out of their head. They would just been like, what the fuck? That was weird. <laughs> yeah. You don't know what you don't know at that point. Exactly. <laughs> All right, so uh, jumping into chapter 14, uh, it's called Sideways in Time. And this one I'm going to try to go through as quick as I can. So basically, the gist of this chapter is Keel goes through like three different UFO encounters that he says are, quote, probably caused by the same cosmic mechanism. And uh, the first one is an Italian contactee named Eugenio Saragusa, I believe is how it's pronounced. And um, this encounter happened in 1951, and Saragusa was waiting for the bus when he saw this big white luminous object, 
And this one's kind of just typical, like benevolent space brothers type stuff. Uh, he saw this light and then afterwards he continued to have like ESP type communications with these entities for 11 years. And uh, then in 1962, he physically met these entities for the first time. And when he met these entities, they were two tall blonde figures wearing what he described as silver spacesuits. So this is kind of interesting to me for a couple reasons. One, tall blonde figures, that's kind of the Nordic idea. And two, this uh, whole silver spacesuits thing, you know, um, Indrid Cold supposedly had like a silver garment on. And when Derenberger went to um, the NASA base, he brought back material from a spacesuit that he said was, you know, very similar to what Indrid Cold had on. So I thought those were two kind of interesting little details and tidbits that, kind of tie in with some stuff we've talked about previously. I was going to say, you can even relate that too with Pascagoula and the Hopskinville Goblins, that they all uh, well, seem to have these metallic suits. We're going to one of those in just a second. So, <laughs> sit tight. But uh, anyway, so like I said, this is just typical benevolent Space Brothers stuff. Uh, these entities warned Mr. Saragusa against the dangers of atomic weapons, and he implored humanity to, like, everybody love everybody and be more concerned with the well-being of others. So that's kind of the gist of the actual encounter. And Keel said that, quote, Mr. Saragusa was reprogrammed in the classic manner of all fanatics, and he has been used to disseminate propaganda crouched in terms understandable and acceptable to us. So basically he's saying that, you know, this whole benevolent Space Brothers thing is a facade that these ultra-terrestrials or entities from the super spectrum are putting on. It's at least how I interpret that. Or, on another side of it, all of these uh, humanoids that people seem to have interactions with as far as, like, the ones that are giving them information are very human-like. So it could be a psyop on the other side, that they're trying to control the extraterrestrial narrative by placing humans and saying that they're extraterrestrials. I mean, it's possible. <laughs> I mean, we really don't know what these men in black type entities are. So, because I mean, even Valiant Thor, they described him as looking just like a normal guy, even though he claimed yeah. to have came from another place and gave the government a bunch of uh, information and technology. So, I mean, again, kind of keeps the same motif that all of these extraterrestrials that are quote giving technology or giving information weirdly enough, seem to be all the humanoid, human-looking ones. So maybe it's not even extraterrestrial in the first place, but rather they're getting information from an extraterrestrial and trying to bring the information back and display it from like the perspective of something that's like human-like. You know what I mean? Yeah, they're using this, again, facade or mask of an extraterrestrial to disseminate this information to the masses. And I guess at that point, too, people don't necessarily know what to look out for either. So they're kind of just keeping the topic up in the air because are you looking for something that looks like a human? Are you looking for something that looks like a gray? Like nobody knows which direction to actually go forth as far as like trying to find these extraterrestrials that are giving hey, information. Could be all of them. Yeah. You know? I mean, could be a mix of all of it. <laughs> and that's a good segue into our next encounter, which is the Pascagoula abduction which I'm not going to go into a ton of detail on this one because we covered it in an entire episode of Bizarre Encounters. I believe it was episode 55. So, so uh, go, go back and listen. <laughs> yeah. If you want all the details, go check it out. I'm going to breeze through this one. So October 11th, 1973 in Pascagoula, Mississippi, Charles Hickson and Calvin Parker were fishing after work one night 
As they were fishing, they saw two blue flashing lights over the water. The lights, you know, turn into this craft. It lands. They become paralyzed. Uh, some robotic-type extraterrestrial-looking entities come out of the ship. They carry them onto the ship. They get, quote-unquote, examined. They spit them back out of the ship. That's basically the long and the short of the actual encounter. Highly recommend so, going and at least looking up what these things look like because it is pretty interesting. If you don't go back and listen to the old episode, at least look up a picture of what the Pascagoula alien aliens looked like. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's a pretty wild one. It's definitely one of the more interesting and different, I'd say, abduction stories. Just because it's kind of like a one-off in the aspect that there are a lot of commonalities with other UFO abductions, even down to like uh, like the suits they're wearing, but their actual like physical appearance really hasn't been referenced in that same manner in anything else that I've come across in my research, at least as of now. I mean, there might be something else out there, but maybe I just haven't found it yet. <laughs> well, I think we talked about this probably in the actual Pascagoula episode, and we've mentioned it a few times recently, but that case almost has more similarities to like Hopkinsville and Flatwoods than it does a lot of quote-unquote abduction cases to me. Something weird to think about, because <laughs> this just popped in my head. So you got the uh, Hopskinville goblins that were obviously all metallic looking, like a silver. And then you have the Pascagoula abduction, where they were also a very different form, but still completely silver. So, that being said, not necessarily assuming that these things have a definite physical shape. What if these this form of extraterrestrials is more so like an amorphic, like metallic-y material and they can form their shape into whatever they choose to be at the time. So if they're trying to do something a little bit incognito, maybe even trying to peek in some windows, learn something about some humans, then of course they're going to be little creatures and be less intimidating because they're trying to sneak and actually view some stuff. But if they're trying to abduct somebody, they're going to come across as big creatures. They look scary and intimidating. But again, maybe they don't necessarily have a shape, and the commonality is the fact that it is some type of uh, amorphic metallic material that can basically morph and shape itself into whatever shape that it wants to be at any given time. And that could be why a lot of these one-off UFO encounters that involve something that's completely silver seem like they're just one-off. So they're only described physically that one way, that one time. And that could kind of get back to like the Roswell material too, you know? Yeah. And the fact that they're able to crinkle it up, kind of shape it and it yeah. like bounce back to its original shape, which shows that it's definitely like pliable and malleable. Yeah. There you go. So uh, kind of jumping back into Pascagoula, uh, according to Keel, Hickson and Parker, quote, suffered a rather routine hallucination, which hurled them into the national television, or excuse me, hurled them onto national television and attracted the attention of UFO files, crackpots, and astronomers. So Keel came to believe that this abduction was actually a hallucination, in part because the pier that they were fishing at was, quote, under constant surveillance by a TV system at a naval installation. That should be red flags to everybody right there. Uh, that was located across the river. And he said uh, the men monitoring the system saw nothing unusual that night. And Keel goes on to say that, quote, they're also in full view of a nearby drawbridge and the toll booths for a uh, neighboring highway. The men manning those positions did not see anything unusual on the river. They saw no lights. Additional proof that the episode was a hallucination. Or so, on the other side of it, because I don't know if it was uh, necessarily a common idea at the time that Kill was writing this, but the whole concept of these 
extraterrestrial interdimensional beings being able to basically like freeze time. So, you know, just because nothing was seen by anybody else around doesn't necessarily mean that it didn't happen because how many UFO abduction cases are there where people describe that, you know, they'll be in their bedroom and there'll be like their siblings sleeping in the same room and they'll be sleeping and not moving and have no idea that anything is happening. And then it gets into this idea about if these things are existing out of our concept of how we perceive time and physics to be, these things could literally just basically freeze time besides who they're trying to interact with and not, one other person around them besides the people they're interacting with would have would be, even be aware of the fact that they were there in the first place. We are basically going to touch on that exact thought here in a little bit. So keep that in mind for... Man, I keep jumping ahead. I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> no, you're all good, man. Just uh, keep that one in mind. We're going to get there in just a few. So uh, moving on to the third encounter that Keel talks about. And this one I'm going to spend a little bit more time on because it ties in more the whole Mothman prophecy stuff a little more than the previous two, in my opinion. Mothman! With an exclamation mark. So Three exclamation marks. So this one happened to a college student named Tom. And in December of 1967, he was driving outside of Washington, D.C., and he came across a large egg-shaped object blocking the road in front of him. So just like the Derenberger injured cold encounter. Uh, he said that the object was white in color and set on four legs. The object Derenberger described, he also said, set on four legs. So standing next to the object were two strange men wearing light blue coveralls and thick-soled shoes. So there's you know, blue coveralls and thick soled shoes popping up again. Nothing to be seen here. They're just electrical workers. That's just the normal facade for electrical workers. The thick shoes are for safety and the blue jumpsuits are just so you know that they're electrical employees. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> so according to Tom, uh, these two entities had bulging eyes and a, quote, ruddy or suntanned complexion. So, you know, everybody says how they have like a darker or olive complexion. This guy's saying the same thing. So uh, one of the men uh, excuse me, approached Tom's car, and he had a huge grin on his face. So there's that again. Creepy. Creepy as hell. <laughs> yep. And the man introduced himself as Vadig. Vadig. I'm not sure how it's pronounced. Vadig. V-A-D-I-G. So however you guys want to pronounce that. Vadig. I don't know. That, that's my best guess is Vadig. Vadig. Yeah. So anyway... They chit-chatted a little bit, and before uh, Vodig and his companion got back onto their spaceship and flew away, he told Tom, quote, I'll see you in time. And remember that, because it's going to pop up a few more times here in this story. So uh, Tom you know, rushed home after this, and he told his roommates what had happened to him, but of course you know, they thought he was just making this shit up. They didn't believe him. But in February of 1968, so a couple months later, Vodig appeared um, in the restaurant where Tom worked. And this time he was wearing a suit and a black overcoat. And again, Indrid Cold was wearing a black overcoat on the first night when he met Derenberger. Trying to be mysterious and intimidating. <laughs> yep. Yeah, he uh, had a uniform change. But anyway, so uh, Vodig asked Tom if he remembered who he was, and of course he said that he did, and he asked him if he would meet with him the following Sunday night. So Tom agrees to this, and when the time came um, for him to leave, he again said, I'll see you in time. So this kind of seems to be like their normal, like, you know, 
see you guys later type that, you know, this is just like how they say goodbye to people. So uh, the next Sunday rolled around. And as Tom was arriving home from work, a black car pulled in behind him. And the window rolled down, and this Vodig character appeared, and he told Tom to get in the car. So they got in the car, and they drove to this remote stretch of the back roads of Maryland. And the egg-shaped object that he had seen earlier was sitting there. So they got in the object, and it took off, and allegedly he went on this space flight. And it seemed like he was in this object for hours, and then he saw this planet that they were approaching. So they landed on the planet. They get out of the egg-shaped craft, and uh, this entity told Tom that they were on Lanulose, which, of course, is supposedly Indrid Cold's home planet. So Tom said that he was shown around the planet, and it was very similar to Earth, also what Derenberger said about Lanulose. And then so after a while, he was put back on the ship and taken home and you know dropped off, same place they had left from, and taken home back to his apartment. And when Vodig left him, he again said, I'll see you in time. So after this encounter, Tom told his roommates again about the situation that he had just experienced. And for some reason, they believed him this time. And he said that it seemed as if the entire trip had taken less than two hours. So there you go. And we're going to get back to this time thing in just a second. But... um. About a month later after this happened, one of Tom's roommates saw Woody Derenberger on a local Washington, D.C. talk show. And Derenberger was talking about his encounter, and he specifically mentioned Lanulose. So, you know, this set off alarm bells in the roommate's head. So he, like, barges into Tom's bedroom and tells him what he had heard. And after this show was over, they actually called the TV station and talked with Derenberger. And kind of synchronicity, twist of fate, whatever. Keel happened to be in Washington, D.C. at this same time. So uh, he and Derenberger met with Tom and one of Tom's roommates. And Keel believed that Tom was being sincere about his entire encounter. And he said that even Derenberger seemed kind of surprised to have like his story validated and confirmed by this other guy's experience. And then so uh, kind of rounding out this chapter, uh, Keel states that during Derenberger's trips with Injured Cold, it also seemed as if, you know, he'd be gone for days at a time. And when he got back, only a few hours of Earth time had passed. And for this reason, Derenberger, quote, regarded the euphonauts as time travelers. And Keel goes on to say that the entities seem to experience problems adjusting to our time frame and that their speech sounded like a speeded-up phonograph record uh, could be due to their failure to adjust to our time cycle when they enter our space-time continuum. And we talked about that a little bit in part two, but there you go. See, I'm glad that you brought that up, because the whole time he was saying in time, I was kind of perceiving that as I will see you in time, seeming like it was more so talking about a place. Because at least with these experiences, he obviously has the weird time warp kind of concept to it where, you know, lost time, time didn't feel like it was moving in the same cycle. So when he said in time, maybe he was talking about in time as more of like a location, meaning that like outside of our reality in a, in a place that is time, 
so to speak, than the actual way that we would use it saying like, I'll see you a little bit later. You know what I mean? Because, But wouldn't that make sense if you're looking at time in more of like a fourth dimensional type way and not in this linear, oh, I'll see you, you know, next Tuesday or whatever. You That's know? what I'm saying. I'll see you in time, meaning like a location, like a, like mm-hmm. another reality, actually. That, that yeah, was kind of well, like how I was perceiving it. Another time would be kind of like us going to a location to them, I guess. That is true. And then the other comment I was going to make, they're talking about Lanulos, the planet, and how it was very close to Earth and how these beings from there obviously look a lot like humans. So just like out of curiosity, this is obviously something nobody's necessarily going to know the answer to, but assumably, does it seem like things would adapt to the place that they're from, meaning that we have evolved to be how we are on this planet because it's the most functional with the way that this planet is set up. So if you have another planet that's very similar to Earth, then the advanced beings on that planet are going to end up being a lot like us because that seems to be the physical appearance that works the best in that, in that, that way that, uh, I guess you could say that type of like atmosphere, that That type of reality where like maybe some of these beings that are like the, like the rep reptilians or like the mantis beings, things like that, their home planets could be set up a completely different way. And that's why they formed in the way that they did is because that is the most, um, beneficial form in which, in which to exist on that planet. So seemingly anything that came from an earth like planet might look very close, if not identical to how we are, we're set up just maybe more advanced version of us, depending on how long that they've been settled on that planet for. Yeah, I think that's one way of looking at it, and I think that makes a lot of sense. And you know, just devil's advocate, the other way to look at that, I guess, would be kind of more ancient astronaut Anunnaki type situations, where you know, what if we come from these things? You know, I mean, there's even the theory that maybe we theoretically were from Mars at one point, and then we came to this planet, and that's why we lost a lot of our history was because we actually came from somewhere else. And once that planet became unlivable, because they said that they found all the places that would have theoretically been waterways, all of this, all of that, maybe some type of like huge event happened that made that planet unlivable. So you had to move another one closer to the sun. And that being said, maybe in another couple thousand years, if the planet, if the sun doesn't explode by then, this planet will become unlivable. And then the humans type beings will move another planet in and end up going to Venus because maybe that won't be so hot then. And then that one will be a little bit more livable. It'll just be like jumping down the chain of planets there. (laughs) <laughs> and then everybody be like, man, I wish we could make it to Earth. That's a crazy planet. And then beyond that, there's another one called Mars. And I heard at one point they said they found waterways there. Isn't that crazy that we could have theoretically been from Earth and Mars? <laughs> just It's just a cycle. <laughs> so uh, jumping into chapter 15, uh, this one is called Misery on the Mount. I love these names. I just got to yeah, point that out. So, I got to say it again. I love phantom photographers. That sounds pretty creepy, too. That's a good one, too. <laughs> and then Sideways in Time sounds like a really good, cheesy, like, sci-fi movie or book or something yeah (laughs) yeah so uh in this chapter chapter 15 uh keel discusses a lot of like men in black encounters that happened not just in point pleasant but all over the country and even some of them i think are in like england that he's talking about but again i tried to streamline this as much as possible weird question though would the ones in england have an english accent or would they still be talking in an american english accent i don't know i don't have confirmation of that I, i would assume they would speak whatever language like in the area they're visiting because um, like in the uh, Saragusa encounter that we talked about a couple chapters ago, they spoke Italian, those entities. So I think, you know, they kind of speak whatever language 
of the land therein, I think. That's just kind of a weird thing to think about because that might theoretically kind of give you a place on like where these things could be or if they're just straight manipulating us. So like theoretically one down south, would it talk maybe a little bit more southern than one in the north would? Like I'm kind of curious if they kind of pick up whatever dialect of the area that they're in or if they have a universal dialect, which may show that maybe they are potentially coming from an area on this earth or in another reality on this earth, but they might have like a base location that they exist somewhat on this planet. Well, you know, a lot of them talk about like this, like sing songy type manner that they speak in. So maybe that's kind of their like base language and then they morph it to whatever location they're in. Something weird to think about. I'm kind of curious now if the ones in England had a English accent or if they still kind of had like an American accent. Yeah, we'll have to dig into that more. I really haven't seen that specifically mentioned. <clears throat> I feel like that's an important detail that should have been referenced. <laughs> yeah. So uh, there was also a rash of strange activity that occurred in the Mount Misery area of Long Island, New York. And a uh, local radio personality there, her name was Jane Paro, P-A-R-O. And she hosted like an interview show where she talked about like the history and psychic lore of the area. And through uh, Jane Paro, Keel met several contactees. And a lot of these contactees claimed that they were receiving visits and communications from like these men in black type entities like injured cold. And in fact, Keel states, quote, the year of the Garuda, 1966 through 67, was only half over. And I was talking to half a dozen entities through contactees scattered, excuse me, throughout the Northeast. And through one of these contactees, Keel was allegedly given like numerous prophecies and predictions. So this is where the prophecies of the Mothman prophecies comes in. So it's taken us till chapter 15 to get to the prophecies. And here we are. (laughs) So in the Mothman prophecies, not much Mothman and not much prophecies. (laughs) Just at the tail end. (laughs) So jumping back in. One of these prophecies concerned a assassination attempt on the Pope. And, you know, there's a lot of kind of random ones about like plane crashes and things like that. And some of these prophecies ended up being surprisingly accurate. Like the one about the plane crash ended up being very accurate. There was one about like the death of a, a news anchor that ended up being pretty accurate. And some of them kind of had elements of the truth. And some of them ended up just being completely false. So I'm not going to like go through each of the prophecies, but you know, chapter 15 in the book, if y'all are interested, that's where the bulk of them are. But see, there's still that back and forth on that, where if these other beings that he was referencing are talking about seeing you in time, like there, there's like a wrap up to it where these things may theoretically be existing in a time that's different than ours, even with the sing-songy thing like you were talking about, where just because they stated these things and said they're going to happen doesn't necessarily mean that they happen on the timeline that you're currently on or timelines sh- changed and shift as things went on. So, I mean, they could have been theoretically all right at the time that they said them, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to stay true as timelines start to spread out and change. Yeah, and it could be one of those things that we've talked about, you know, some of these predictions or prophecies are true in one dimension, but then when you jump over a dimension, like a Berenstain bears type situation, they're not exactly true in the next dimension, you know? Mm-hmm. Or again, people being aware of these things then act 
in a way to make them not happen, and then in yeah. turn again end up shifting which timeline you're theoretically on. Because the way I've like always kind of viewed timelines, your own adventure novel type situation. Exactly. That's kind of how honestly I've I've always viewed timelines is that it's not one straight linear line because otherwise that gets rid of the option of free will. I think it's more so like a like one of those spider web things where it goes out where like one splits into two and then that one splits into two and then that splits into two and then you can flow down the river of the timeline and end up in a different place every time you flow down the river. You know what I mean? Yeah, for sure. Uh, so meanwhile, back in Point Pleasant, there were numerous sightings of strange men in unmarked panel trucks. And uh, these men uh, reportedly wore coveralls and were frequently seen tampering with phone lines. And, you know, we talked about a lot of the weird, like, phone calls and phone interference that people, uh, Keel himself even, were experiencing. And Mary Heyer also was visited at her home by two strange men. And she said they were dressed in all black and had short, almost white hair that appeared as if it had been dyed. And initially, she assumed that these were just kind of like crackpots or UFO researchers or something like that. But again, this has popped up time and time again. She said that they mostly seemed interested in learning more about John Keel himself and not necessarily interested in talking about UFOs or Mothman or anything. But what's most interesting about this is when they were leaving her house, one of the men said, we'll see you in time, which is the same thing that Vodig said to Tom. Sounds like the doc from Back to the Future <laughs> showing up with white dyed hair saying, I'll see you in time. <laughs> yeah. Where they're going, they don't need roads. <laughs> you better hit 77. No, 88. That's what it is. You better hit 88. <laughs> yep. All right. So you got anything else before we jump into chapter 16? Oh, we can just keep on rolling, man. All right. Let's keep rolling. So chapter 16. In this chapter, uh, Keel digs deeper into kind of the contactee and alien abduction phenomenon. And he states, quote, I was concerned not with the sincere but falsified memories of the contactees, but with a more worrisome question. What, I wondered, happened to the bodies of these people while their minds were taking trips? Were our, con excuse me, were our contactees being used by exterior intelligence to carry out crimes, even murder? The answer is a disturbing yes. If you review the history of political assassinations, you will find that many were performed by so-called religious fanatics who are obeying the voice of God or were in an obvious state of possession when they committed their crimes. In the contactee parlance, persons who perform involuntary acts are said to be, quote, used. Apparently, a relatively small part of the population have auras or biological radiation which attracts elements of the superspectrum. Such people are prone to controlled hallucinations and possession, since the entities probably exist as energy in a field outside our space-time continuum. They can only see and be seen by these special people. So I know that was kind of a long quote, but I thought there was a lot to unpack there, and I thought I couldn't paraphrase it any better than just rattling it off so do you have anything to comment on that lengthy quote well <clears throat> just to be the devil's advocate as always <laughs> you mentioned the terminology voice of god and whenever i hear that my mind goes to that weird little patent that the government has where they used a piece of technology called the voice of god where they supposedly were able to project 
voices into people's heads and then they were actually ruled it as being like inhumane whatever the fuck so they decided that like scrap it you know how they scrap stuff and then it just disappears and nobody starts following it anymore so it's like for the sake of these religious fanatics you know end up assassinating people could it theoretically be government officials projecting these thoughts in their head trying to push a certain agenda or take out a political figure that they need to be taken out and be able to have a scapegoat to blame because they never had firsthand interaction with these people but rather use a piece of technology where they thought they were talking to god so they just took advantage of them being a religious fanatic and thinking they were hearing god but they're actually hearing their voice while they're using this piece of technology well, that's why I left this quote in just as is because I thought it kind of really plays into the whole idea we were talking about with like the mask lines with these like hallucinatory type um, abduction experiences and that it is possibly some sort of government manipulation or experimentation or something along those lines. I think this falls right in line with that. And again, like I've said when we're talking about that sort of thing, I think more than one thing can be true at a time. I think some people are legitimately being abducted. And I think a lot of this stuff is government manipulations. And I think Keel is a little hasty to say, oh, none of this is extraterrestrial. It's all this other ultra terrestrial thing. But, you know, I, I think more than one thing could be true at a time, you know? That's kind of where I'm at with it, man, that I know a lot of ufologists don't like to take it into consideration, but I think just as much of of the phenomenon that may be extraterrestrial may also be human-related. And I agree. I mean, at this point, considering how much of this research we've done into these UFO abduction cases, you know, I often question if it's more like 25% are actually extraterrestrial and 75% is actually some type of government-related abduction. (laughs) That's kind of what I tend to believe about a lot of this stuff is, you know, even if 90% of it is either, you know, some naturally occurring, you know, ball lightning swamp gas, whatever. And, you know, the rest is some sort of combination of governmental manipulation, something like that. I mean, even if like, 1% of these things are truly extraterrestrial in nature or something weird or ultra-terrestrial, whatever label you want to put on it. That's still a lot of cases, you know? Oh, yeah. And But no, piggybacking off what you said, I think you're absolutely right. I think the vast majority of these type of cases are either something easily explained by nature or some sort of human government whatever manipulation. And at least for me, I feel like a lot of it comes down to the ships, where at least from my research, it seems like there's kind of like a like an idea behind the ships as far as like a lot of the more like triangle shaped ship, ships, I feel might be more government slash human related. Um, but then when you have these objects that don't seem like they should float, like maybe even like the egg shaped one, for example, maybe mm-hmm. that's a little bit more something like extraterrestrial. But it seems like from at least a lot of the stuff that I've researched that more often than not, it seems like the triangle crafts, like it's a split in my head. It's like 90-10, but I feel like they're, those are the government crafts 100%. Yeah. 
No, that makes perfect sense because um, if I'm not mistaken, Derenberger described the craft that uh, injured cold was in it like shaped like a kerosene lamp or something ridiculous like that. I don't remember what the exact wording he used, but that's in the ballpark of it. So again, something that you wouldn't think would be a spacefaring craft. Yeah, something that doesn't seem like it would be able to actually float. But then again, that's where it kind of comes back into the idea of maybe these ships... Like, we're looking at UFOs like we're trying to look at something that'd be able to fly across the galaxy, you know, like a saucer, like, again, the triangle crafts. But some of these extraterrestrials, the whole intention when they travel isn't necessarily that they're going across across galaxies, but rather that they're opening a hole in the fabric of time and yeah. going through that. The so these ships, realistically, might just be lifting off the ground and then going through that and appearing somewhere else. So the most flight these things are realistically doing is maybe just a couple hundred feet off the ground and then coming back down. And they're not, again, flying across space where we're looking at ships like they have this like flat flight kind of pattern to them. You know what I mean? Yeah, and I, I'm sure I've said this on the show before, but I think you know this idea that people talk about with interstellar travel and like this idea that these aliens are getting behind the wheel of their spaceship and they're flying across you know infinite space I, if these things are traveling like you said they're they're going through wormholes or what they're basically beaming from one place to the next they're not you know like getting in their little cars and driving like i think a lot of people perceive you know so yeah that, that's a great point these things probably don't need to be as aerodynamic and sleek as maybe we think they do mm -hmm. and that again might be where the whole human concept comes into that we're trying to recreate these ships that could theoretically do what we think these things are doing and that's it's why we're going like, in one direction but these things are totally shaped in another direction you know yeah it's almost like the opposite of you know the jokes about like what aliens think people would do or what like we're doing the opposite of that like what do we think a spaceship would look like <laughs> pretty much and that's why we're not getting anywhere as far as space travel goes because we're looking at completely the wrong idea on yeah, how to travel and cool how to looking. shape these things make them look like kerosene lamps <laughs> i want to see a ship that's like a giant ball but you make a joke about that and then watch one day the vegas sphere will just lift up and disappear it's actually the elite backup shit for when the planet's about to end hey, and they just place it in the middle of vegas shit, don't you <laughs> James Dolan, if I'm not uh, mistaken, <laughs> who is the owner of like the New York Knicks and the Rangers, owns Madison Square Garden. His dad's a fucking gazillionaire. He's a trust fund person who's kind of fallen ass backwards into all of this. So, would not surprise me, dude. What not a perfect place to put an elite escape ship though because if that's vegas is in the middle of the fucking desert so all the elites could literally just land their planes in the middle of the desert come into the city and take off like it's a perfect yeah, cover up already the the fucking airport that goes to roswell or uh <laughs> area 51 excuse me there that's why the whole inside is like the virtual reality looks like you're in another place thing is because it's supposed to simulate you know they can go there and they can sit in there and they could be in the middle of space but feel like they're in the middle of like a giant open beautiful field <laughs> like they're just they're setting themselves up to mentally prepare for like when they have to go a long distance or they may not theoretically have a planet anymore <laughs> there you go internet you heard it here first <laughs> the vegas sphere is actually an elite escape ufo ship <laughs> confirmed so all right so jumping back in um after the accuracy of some of these entities previous prophecies keel became convinced that the pope was indeed going to be assassinated and they also said that after the Pope's assassination, uh, there would be like this blackout and three days of darkness would follow. 
that sounds like something biblical to begin with. Yeah, like a plague or some shit. Yeah, three days of darkness after the Pope gets killed. That sounds like something biblical. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, so Kiel says that the Pope landed in Istanbul safely and there was no three-day blackout. The whole episode served no purpose other than to demonstrate to me how and why so many contactees and prophets go and sit on hilltops to await the end of the world. So after this kind of Pope assassination prediction ended up being false, many of the contactees that Keel was communicating with became convinced that there would be a large electromagnetic event that would happen in December. And uh, because of this electromagnetic event, a large portion of the United States would be without electricity. So uh, Keel states but that by this point, he was in contact with several entities uh, through several different contactees, and that as this communication increased, so did his like weird telephone calls and like issues with the mail started popping up. With the physical mail? Said, yeah, like uh, his parcels. He said that on several occasions he had uh, letters and even like non-UFO stuff, just like his bills and whatnot. And they would arrive days late, and they had, like, obviously been tampered with when he got them. Trying to make him paranoid, man. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. So uh, I've got a quote to kind of close this out. And again, this is one that didn't really fit in with anything, but I thought was kind of interesting. Um, so Keel says that he uh, came to believe that his own investigations were kind of being manipulated by some outside force and that he was being led to certain people and certain cases that would support whatever theory or idea he was working on at that time. And he says, quote, if the phenomenon can produce any effect through hallucination, so this kind of gets back to what we were talking about a few minutes ago, it can easily support any theory. It took me a long time to realize that many of my men in black reports were just feedback. And I think that's an interesting way of looking at it, like feedback. Is this men in black phenomena just like some sort of side effect of a larger phenomenon? I, I don't know. I just thought that was an interesting way of looking at it and wording it. <laughs> kind of another weird way to interpret it too is that if you get into the whole concept that we kind of talked about as far as like the government potentially using hallucinogens to be able to manipulate people's minds that they'd have to do like a, like a checkup, you know what I mean? To see how the person's doing, uh, what information they're made about back, if the test possibly worked. So it gets into the idea about, you know, the men in black theoretically being some form of a government agent and the whole aspect of them doing weird shit could potentially be that same thing that, you know, if somebody's tripping, that you just do weird shit just to make them uncomfortable and feel weird. So again, it could have intentionally been government employees that knew that these people were on some type of hallucinogen and they were purposely doing weird shit to see if it would react with them or make them uncomfortable or possibly like freak out or something, for example. Yeah. I mean, that kind of gets back to MK ultra type ideas and it's a continuation know, a of, of like the acid tests. Yeah, and a lot of people think that like uh, Rendlesham Forest and a lot of UFO events were basically faked to gauge people's reaction. So, you know, that's kind of right in line with that line of thinking. I mean, they could even purposely have done it, too, to see if the hallucinogens were still taking effect on those people to see if they would notice the, the weird behavior. Yeah, no, that's very possible. Could have been completely something psychological that they were trying to do instead of them actually being weird in the first place. It could have completely been purposeful. 
Like we say, could be more than one thing going on at the same time. Very true. (laughs) All right. Jumping into chapter 17. This is a good title. It's even Bedouins hate the telephone company. So this one might be the most unhinged of all the, the chapter titles. What What is a Bedouin? I, I don't exactly know. <laughs> I was really hoping you'd have an answer for me. <laughs> I, I really think it might be like a gypsy or something like that. Like, what, I'll tell you what. I'll start with the notes and why don't you look up and we'll get confirmation on what a Bedouin is. Oh, um, trust me. I'm already on it. You already, you already knew I was already looking that up. <laughs> All right, so in this chapter, chapter 17, uh, Keel says that he continued to kind of be relayed these predictions and prophecies, and in particular, the entities warned Keel of, quote, a terrible forthcoming disaster on the Ohio River. And he said that the entities seemed to imply that one of the many factories along the river would blow up. And, of course, this would result in the death of many people. And Keel relayed this concern to Mary Heyer and further speculated that a, here you go again, Navy installation located in Point Pleasant might be the location of the disaster. So did you find out what a Bedouin is before I jump into our next thought here? Well, this one is a really weird one. And I was going to say, I want you to take a guess at what you think it means, because I guarantee you. You're going to be way off because <laughs> just go ahead and throw it out there then. A nomadic Arab of the desert. See, I thought it was like a gypsy. That's what I said. <laughs> I, I was close. You're somebody close. You're on the, you're on the line. <laughs> yeah. Hey, I, I'm considering that a win. If you go for the nomadic aspect, because yeah, gypsies yeah. would have been a Romanian thing where maybe this is essentially like the Arabic version of like what they would have perceived like Romanians would have perceived gypsies to be, you know, like the nomadic ones that are just doing shady shit. (laughs) For a word that I really didn't know what it meant, I I take that as a win. Yeah, you're you're pretty close. (laughs) So jumping back in, uh, when Keel was talking about this Navy installation, this I think is kind of interesting. The quote doesn't have a whole lot to do with like the Mothman prophecies, but I thought it was a good quote and gives us a good jumping off point. So Keel said, quote, The Navy installation was a fenced-in area in Point Pleasant, facing the river and tightly guarded. The men who worked there were sworn to secrecy, but during my first visit, it only took me a few days to find out what was going on there. I am not going to reveal any national secrets here, but my private conclusion was that some admiral in the Pentagon should get his ass kicked for wasting taxpayers' money and for putting this type of installation in a populated area. Dun, dun, dun. So what were they doing here? This gets back to you know military installations. This sounds like Montauk type shit. A lot, lot to unpack here. So. Secret testing, uh, mm-hmm. mind manipulation. Did uh, they open some kind of portal that the Mothman came through? Mm-hmm. That also definitely very likely. <laughs> yep. They're good, when they, they went into the upside they were down. Doing, like sent out some kind of signal that these men in black type entities came because of who knows, but I thought that was kind of cool. So also, uh, Keel was informed by these entities that the large electromagnetic event and resulting blackout was supposed to happen on December 15th. And, uh, Keel kind of goes into some more, uh, about his issues with the phone calls and like the telephone company and stuff. And this isn't that interesting. I don't think so. I'm going to kind of breeze through this as much as I can, but at some point, you know, he had filed a lot of complaints with the telephone company 
and he asked them to see if his line was being tapped and they like did some sort of investigation they looked at the line from like his apartment all the way to the telephone hub whatever and they confirmed that it did appear that his telephone line was being tapped and uh keel said that because of this uh the telephone interference and weird calls and everything quote appear to be the work of either paranormal forces or a large, well-financed organization with motives that evade me. And the thing that's kind of interesting about that to me is these stories that came out of Point Pleasant about like these men in black type entities like fiddling around with the uh, telephone lines and stuff like that. So are these men in black entities themselves tapping people's phones, or is this some kind of government thing? There's... Or on a weird side, if that. they were doing some type of secret, weird experiments, if they were doing some type of interdimensional, whatever, opening up portals, assumably there might be some weird frequencies, different things that are coming, resonating from that area. So maybe they were trying to alter the phone lines to not pick up on the weird, uh, what's what I'm looking for, like um, residual frequencies that may have been coming out of whatever experiment they were doing. Yeah, it's possible, but, you know, it's just kind of funny to me that, like, these phone interferences keep coming up time and time again. Like, it doesn't matter where you're at or, you know, what contactee you talk to, they're having these same type of situations happen, and it's always, like, in concert with poltergeist-type activity or UFO sighting. Like, it's, it's just one aspect of something else that's going on, which kind of makes me wonder if like Keel said if it's you know something paranormal that's going on and manipulating these phones and you know we talk about frequency and energy cars, man yeah and cars dying and things like that i wonder if you know this is just kind of part of that whole situation cuz i mean even on the other side of that most people you know you have like the power drain but you also have the power surge so maybe if certain areas power surge then people will get phone calls with weird repetitive noises on the other side. Um, and it's not, again, so much that yeah. it's actually somebody breathing on the phone or anything like that, but rather that it's maybe like an overpower to the phone causing some type of weird sound effect. Kind of like, um, you know, when you have, when you're listening to headphones, for example, like maybe Gen Z won't necessarily get this, but the older generations will. But if you're like listening to like headphones or something in like the early 2000s and you got like a text message, you'd hear this like, and then your phone would go off. So it's like it was interfering with the atmosphere around you before you even received like the text message on your phone. I don't know if so much like new phones do that because everything's like Bluetooth headphones. But in the early 2000s, if you're listening to some wired headphones on like your iPod and you had like your track phone sitting next to you and you got a text before that text showed up, you'd hear this like noise in the background of your headphones. Then then you get a text message. It was the MIB. Oh, here comes the MIB. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so we're going to jump into uh, chapter 18. This one is called Something Awful is Going to Happen. And a lot of this chapter has to do more with like Keel's saga with his phone calls and uh, fighting with the phone company. So I'm going to skip past all that and kind of get to the, the meat of the end of the story. So uh, in chapter 18, Keel states that uh, Mary Heyer began, excuse me, began having dreams in which, quote, there were a lot of people drowning in the river and Christmas packages were floating everywhere in the water. 
And she went on to tell Keel that, quote, I've been feeling uneasy ever since, and everybody else feels the same way. You can't really put your finger on it, but it's like something awful is about to happen. That's the name of this chapter. <laughs> they said the name. They said the they name. Said it. I said it. <laughs> so also around this time, uh, the entities clarified that this supposed large electromagnetic event uh, that would, you know, supposed to occur on December 15th, it would coincide with the annual uh, White House Christmas tree lighting ceremony. So like when, you know, the president flipped the switch to light the tree, like all the power was supposed to go out in you know, a large portion of the United States. Goddamn so, Christmas tree. They use too yeah. many damn lights on it. It's, <laughs> it's just like, like a Griswold tree. <laughs> yep, that's what I was about to say. It was just like va- va- vacation. <laughs> Got to flick on the second breaker because they killed it all with all those damn Christmas lights. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So um, long story short, White House Christmas tree ceremony came and went. No blackout, no electromagnetic event. However, during the broadcast, uh, so, you know, Keel's back in New York at this point, and he's watching this on TV. And during the broadcast, a reporter came on with like a breaking news special bulletin type situation announcing that, quote, a bridge laden with rush hour traffic had just collapsed at Gallipolis, Ohio. So as soon as he heard that, he knew what had happened. And he commented, quote, they've done it again. Those lousy bastards have done it again. They knew this was going to happen. And when? And they gave me all this bilge about a power failure. They knew. They just didn't want me to be able to warn anybody. So they gave him information and let him know something was happening, but they didn't tell him the direct event purposefully. Yeah. They told him, you know, tangentially all this stuff, but they didn't give him enough detail to actually do anything uh, allegedly but also too is that a matter of if you were talking about these things coming from a different point in time i feel at least the way time would work that if you went back in time and you changed something that thing has already been changed in the timeline that you're on so you wouldn't actually alter anything but on the other side of it there's still the whole concept about if you go back in time and you smash a butterfly that it's going to affect things in the future because it's going to create a chain of events Maybe that was the concept that if these things were coming from a different point in time or they understood like where our timeline was going, that they purposely could let you know that something was happening, but they can't give you too much information because otherwise then it would affect the timeline completely differently and set forth a completely different chain of events. Yeah, and like we said, maybe in their dimension, reality, whatever, or the next one over from us, that was what was going to happen. Who knows? Yeah, I mean, that could have been the split. Maybe in one timeline, power outage. Another timeline, bridge fell down. Bridge collapse. Yep. But yeah, they were looking at this one, but we side tangent just a hair bit and went down a different path. Yeah. So uh, that segues right into chapter 19, which is the last chapter in the book, and it is called Where the Birds Gather. So in this chapter, Keel kind of goes into more detail about the uh, Silver Bridge collapse and kind of the aftermath of it. And uh, he says the Silver Bridge was constructed in 1928. So like by the late 60s, uh, like it just wasn't designed and built for the amount of traffic and cars and just hustle and bustle that this bridge was being subjected to every single day. So um, on December 15th, when the bridge collapsed, uh, during rush hour, 
the stoplight on the Ohio side of the bridge malfunctioned. And this caused like cars to back up and sit on the bridge like in both directions. So the bridge was supporting like way more weight than possible. And I think it was like really cold that day. So it was kind of a perfect storm of events that happened. And Keel stated, quote, the 700 foot suspension bridge twisted and the main span split from its moorings at either end. Electric cable strung across the bridge snapped in a blaze of sparks. 50 vehicles crashed into the black waters of the Ohio, tons of steel smashing down on top of them. So uh, following the bridge collapse, there were like search parties and boats and they tried to recover as many bodies as possible and, you know, scour the river for survivors. And the phone lines were down and jammed with, you know, people trying to get calls in and out. And eventually Keel was able to get in contact with Mary Heyer. And she allegedly said, quote, I was kind of prepared for it. You know, those dreams I had? Well, it was exactly that. The packages floating in the water, the people crying for help. Those dreams came true. So ultimately, there were 38 bodies that were recovered from the wreckage in the river. But there are a lot of people that were kind of reported missing and never found. Uh, so they assume that you know, way more people died in the collapse than that. They just, you know, kind of don't have confirmation of that. Can we just take a minute to just try to fathom how horrifying that would be? Just clearly on your way home from work, because this happened at f around 5 o'clock p.m. Yeah, 5 people rush hour trying to head home from work, just long day at work, and then this horrific event happened. Like, this is like almost like unfathomable that you, we talk about this all the time, but anybody that talks about Mothman talks about this event, but like, I don't think anybody ever like takes a second just to like realize like how traumatic and horrifying that whole event would be. They just kind of glaze over it like bridge collapse. Boom. <laughs> well, yeah. And like every time we drive over a bridge every day, like this could happen, <laughs> you know, this isn't some crazy thing. I mean, at least being from Michigan, man, the Mackinac Bridge, the one that connects uh, the lower peninsula to the upper peninsula, like anytime there's any weird weather, bro, they completely shut that bridge down and people are like, damn it, I'm just trying to get to the other side. But it's like stuff like this is the exact reason why they do that. And that bridge, bro, if you if it's a if it's like a windy day and you're on the end of it watching it, you can literally see like the Mackinac Bridge like swaying. So it's like. It's horrifying, dude. Just considering like yeah. how often the average person goes over a bridge and then fathoming like the possibility of this actually happening. <laughs> well, when you factor in like the weather and everything, so this is kind of uh, a rabbit hole I'm going to go down, but I'm going to bring it back around. So several years ago, probably five or six years ago at this point, uh, you know, me and Jenny live in um, North Carolina and in Virginia, uh, there's Bush Gardens in Williamsburg, a theme park. And so we were going to like this um, Mardi Gras celebration that they were having. And then, you know, there's going to be like food and drinks and you could ride the ride and whatever. Well, All the allotments you could possibly want. And it would end up being a magical fiasco. Yes. <laughs> but so Mardi Gras, of course, is in like fucking February. And so we didn't even think about this when we were booking the tickets. And so we go. It ends up being like 30 degrees the day that we bought the tickets for. So, like, all the roller coasters and everything were closed, and they're like, no, it's too cold for these roller coasters to run. Like, the steel is not made to be under that amount of pressure and strain in this weather. 
So that's kind of a crude example, but like if a modern roller coaster can't operate in cold weather like this, uh, you know, 50 year old bridge certainly can't, you know? Mm -hmm. And especially considering the fact that like realistically, a lot of these bridges, like they're still being figured out as far as like modern building techniques go. Like if they built a bridge in the sixties, like that was not too far off from like the start of like all of this, like modernized concept of how we build things. So it's like well, things hadn't been fully trial and error at yeah. that point, you know, <laughs> I've heard, um, in like non paranormal research, just like reading about this event, that this was like a big turning point in like American, engineering and bridge construction and then like this kind of set us on like a new path for how we build bridges and stuff now it's kind so. of fucked up to think that the only way that things ever change as far as buildings go is if some type of event happens that you know like it takes no, an event like say, this for them to buildings. realize to I'd say anything <laughs> it takes an event like this for them to realize that they need to yeah. build shit a different way and if this to didn't happen then they would have never so then that goes into the idea that maybe they purposely tried to steer him away from this event, not telling him this event directly, because as fucked up as it sounds, some events are intended to happen for the benefit of everybody else in the future. So like if this maybe event never happens, build better bridges. Exactly. Like if this event never happened, who knows where we would be with bridges now? You know, we could yeah. have built 10 more bridges that were done in this style and had 10 more collapses across the United States if it didn't wasn't for this one event happening that caused everybody to look at their bridges and like reconstruct and rebuild things. Yeah, I hadn't really thought about it that way, but that that's a good take, man. It's kind of a weird messed up concept, but I mean, realistically, if they're trying to help humans with an advancement of technology, I mean, people don't consider it, but technically bridges are a type of technology. So yeah. I mean, <laughs> kind of important to, to get from one place to another because how the hell else are you getting your cars and everybody across waterways you know like <laughs> it's a needed piece of yeah. technology <laughs> yeah no, that, that's a really good point uh so after like this extensive recovery effort like engineers got all the wreckage and all the pieces of the bridge out of the river and they like went to this huge field and like put the pieces back together to try to figure out what had happened and these engineers determined that the cause of the collapse was, quote, metal fatigue and structural failure, which kind of sounds like just a catch-all for the bridge was old. But Yeah. <laughs> anyway, kind of interesting. Uh, there are several UFOs that were spotted in the area um, on the day that the bridge collapsed. And one eyewitness that was kind of in the TNT area said that she saw 12 objects floating like just above the treetops. And also, a woman who lived near the Silver Bridge claimed that, like, a couple days before the collapse, she saw two men climbing on the bridge. So, that's kind of interesting, I thought. And um, just kind of to close out Chapter 19 with a quote, uh, just I thought it was a good quote from Keel, and I think it encompasses, you know, a lot of the stuff we talk about on this show. So before we get into some kind of conclusions and closing thoughts, I'm going to share this quote, if you don't mind. Absolutely. So Keel says, quote, Once we begin looking beyond the mere manifestations, we will finally glimpse the real truth. Belief has always been the enemy of truth. Yet ironically, if our minds are supple enough, belief can sometimes open the door. Ooh. 
Dude, this guy's got some killer quotes, man. Like, yeah. you can't even yeah. paraphrase them. Uh, like you just got to leave them as they first are. first and foremost, you know? <laughs> say they, I don't know why, but just, like, how... The way he, like, writes his quotes as far as, like, these ones that you pull off, like, just are very, like, Hunter S. Thompson-esque in the aspect of, like, you have to leave them as they are because they're very... They're written, they're written so well that if you try to well, paraphrase them, they just don't have the same meaning to them, you know? Yeah, that, and that's why, you know, I, I generally try to avoid just reading off quotes as much as possible, but some of these... You, you just can't paraphrase better. And it's funny you mentioned the Hunter S. Thompson thing because something I came across in my research said that uh, he was regarded or called or nicknamed whatever kill that is, the uh, Hunter S. Thompson of the paranormal. So <laughs> That's perfect. So that I'm not one. the only one that thought that. Like, just again, yeah. the writing style and the way he like words and describe things, just a lot of those like really awesome quotes from hunter s thompson it just has that same feel and like ambiance yeah to like it. that same flavor and cadence and i guess this is kind of you know the same time as when hunter thompson was doing a lot of his really influential work so kind it's of one of those sense, things you know? that they leave and say what they need to say but at the same time it leaves it open for you to actually think about like they leave it where it's like almost like a thought experiment but they're saying everything that they need to say at the same time you know yeah yeah and a lot of the stuff is like really straightforward and you know just very here's the facts, but then every once in a while it'll just hit you with a banger like this one. So same with Hunter S Thompson. Yeah. You'll just be yeah. talking about some crazy stuff happening. And then he gets into the, like one day the ocean will break and the walls will hit the, you know, yeah. <laughs> I don't even want to paraphrase it. Cause I just, I know well, that I quote is so good. I don't know if you can see but... uh, my fear and loathing painting behind me there. <laughs> Actually, Gabby yeah. noticed that a couple weeks ago. I have the same exact one in my hallway with a Ralph Steadman painting of yep. Hunter, fear and loathing. Yep. <laughs> so. Anyway, uh, that's all I've got for the actual like bulk of the book. Um, I don't know how far you want to get into conclusions and theories. I think we kind of theorized as we were going, but I feel like we pretty much said everything that needed to get said as we we're going going along. <laughs> yeah, no, I think we kind of hit everything. Um, if you guys want us to do, maybe we could end up doing like a bizarre inquiries with some more like theories and you know conclusions, whatever at this point if you guys want but yeah i think we've uh we've hit this one pretty good i think so and i mean if you guys would like us to hit this for a bizarre encounters topic you guys can always send us those questions phrased with exactly what you guys want us to address too so just another opportunity there for you guys to uh submit those questions <laughs> there you go and uh with that if you guys enjoyed this episode don't forget to leave a review or rating for the show on itunes or spotify and if you guys leave us a five-star review of course we will read it on the show and give you guys a big shout out and if you think that anybody would enjoy this episode don't forget to share it with friends through word of mouth share the whole show whatever you happen to want to share or even enemies co-workers don't matter just share the shit out of the show and uh keep spreading the word as far as bizarre encounters goes and you guys know the drill. You know how the internet works. Do all the internet things. Hit us up on social media, the Discord. Uh, jump into the uh, TikTok. Uh, all that good stuff. And remember to submit questions for the Bizarre Inquiries Patreon-exclusive mini-show. And with that, I have been the one that they call Shane Squatch. And I've been Orn. Oh, you didn't use the name. <laughs> oh, are we doing it this time? Tell them your new name. We're, we're just going to say outright. This is just going to be for uh, bizarre or bizarre inquiries, but we got we got a nickname finally for Orin over there. What did we land on? UF Orin. <laughs> UF Orin. Love it. There we go. You heard it here first. <laughs> and James with that. Dolan, the sphere, it's a elite 
spaceship. Portal ship. <laughs> yeah, and uniform. Breaking news over here. Breaking news, breaking news. And with that, just like that guess about what the sphere is, it was definitely bizarre. So to all my friends out there, don't forget that it's okay to always stay bizarre. 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 The sphere is a spaceship?